We're going to be in um, the Gospel of Mark today. We're, we are beginning a, a new series, new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. I've never done a, a verse-by-verse teaching through this book, so I'm, I'm excited about doing that. One of the goals that I have uh, as a pastor-teacher is to preach through every New Testament book. And so if the Lord tarries and I don't die, then... Uh, we'll make our way there. Last year or two years ago, we, we got to walk through the book of Acts together. It took us about 50 sermons, uh, but we walked through the book of Acts together. And what an adventure that was learning to, uh, well, seeing the, the first church live uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that that's what God's called us to do, to live empowered by his spirit. So um, as we begin with the Gospel of Mark, how about just a little bit of introductory teachings? That sound OK to you guys? All right, well, good deal. I want to give us kind of a baseline as we begin. So if you found your place in the Gospel of Mark, say, I got it. Okay, good deal. All right, so there's four books in the New Testament that are called Gospels. They're called Gospels. They begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of these are written from four different vantage points, but they essentially tell the same story. The story, like all of Scripture, is focused on the same man. It's the man who changed their lives forever. His name is Jesus. So each gospel is actually given given a title after it was written, uh, the gospel according to, and in this case, it'll be Mark. So it's not the gospel of Mark. It's actually the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. Four different men writing, but the same Holy Spirit is the author. That's the reason that they complement each other. A little different perspectives, but very complementary. No, no debate with the book of Mark about who wrote it. Uh, it is Mark, and there's no debate about the authorship there. One thing we know about the Gospels is none of those men in their writing actually claimed authorship in the, in the work. You know, if you read Paul's letters, he'll say something at the beginning like, I, Paul writing to Thessalonica. Well, the writers of the gospel, none of them do that. And uh, it's pretty neat the, the way they leave themselves out of the story. Even John in particular, he's in the story a lot, right? But when he writes about himself, he usually uses some reference to himself like the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even name himself. That's significant, I think, because these apostles, these disciples who are writing the story, they realize who this story is about. And it's all glory to Christ, right? So that's our objective as well. And this is, um, there's maybe a little bit of debate about which, which of the Gospels was written first. Some people think Mark was the first Gospel. And um, I kind of think it was very early, but, I, you know, it wasn't there. Uh, most scholars believe they were written in the sequence that we find them in the Scriptures. Uh, Matthew first, Mark, Luke, and then John. So each gospel presents Jesus with a slightly different emphasis. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is really helpful as you're reading the gospels to know kind of what is the objective, the main objective of the human author. What what sort of um, aspect about Christ is he going to emphasize most? So as you read Matthew, what you'll note is that his emphasis is that Jesus is king. He's presenting Jesus as King of kings, Lord of lords. So Matthew writes, he's a former tax collector and he struggled, I think, early on to know what earthly ruler to follow. Right. I mean, he was a a traitor among Jews because he he chose to follow Caesar and collect an income from the Roman government as he was collecting taxes from his own people. So he's a kind of a traitor Jew that under and with Jesus, he's now restored to a greater king. So his emphasis in writing his gospel is to present Jesus, not just as the king of the Jews, but ultimately as the king over all peoples. We get to Mark's gospel and he's going to present Jesus as servant. Now, that won't be our emphasis today, but it is the emphasis of the gospel of Mark and specifically Mark 1045. He says that Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And give his life a ransom for many. He was so shocked by this persona of Jesus that it's embedded in all of his writings is that this man 
who deserved the service of everyone has come to give his life as a service to everyone. So Mark's emphasis is Jesus as servant. Luke emphasizes Jesus as savior. Now, all the gospels do that. But Luke in particular is just so obsessed with Jesus reaching into the darkest, deepest holes of life and rescuing somebody. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Jesus tells the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, right? And at the end of that story, you see the sort of the centerpiece of Luke's gospel is this this verse, Luke 19, 10. It says of Jesus, he came to seek and save that which is lost. To seek and save that which is lost. So Luke presents Jesus as savior. And then John is presenting Jesus as God. John's emphasis to present the deity of Jesus. If you remember John's personality, he's a short-tempered, brash guy. Jesus sort of named him and his brother the Sons of Thunder, right? Remember that? One particular story, they're in this village, and um, the the people of that village are rejecting him. They're, They're saying, you know, get out of here. We don't want you here, sort of spitting on him, all that kind of thing. And James and John come to Jesus and they're like, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just roast them all? They're the sons of thunder. These guys, short-tempered, angry men, right? And yet Jesus, the God-man, radically transforms the hearts of all men, right? So John's mission as he writes is to call people to believe in Jesus as God. He writes that, he says, all the books of the world can't contain all the things that Jesus has done. He's not just another man. He is God in human flesh. And he was sent to love. And he came in love to rescue all who will believe. So these are the four gospels written from four different vantage points, but all about Jesus Christ. Each gospel aims to present Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So As you've opened the Gospel of Mark, we're going to read a few verses this morning. We always stand together as a church in honor of God's Word. So I'll let you please stand with me and then you can be seated uh, for a little while as we teach through some of the Scripture. We stand in honor of God's Word. I just want to read the first eight verses, even though we're not going to cover all of these today. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so excited to begin a journey digging through this wonderfully preserved book that is all about you, your, your greatness, your kindness, your patience, your salvation. Father, we want to grow in our affection, our admiration of the man Jesus and our allegiance to him as Christ. We pray, God, that as we walk through this gospel That more, many more would surrender their lives to the Son of God and be saved. Build your kingdom here, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we won't make it far into the book today. 
So if you prefer to hurry your way through the scriptures, today might be a bit frustrating for you. Um, we have tackled big chunks of scripture before in one sermon. Um, just a few months ago, we preached the whole book of Job, 42 chapters in one sermon. That will not be the case today. We will, we will cover one verse in the Gospel of Mark today. Just one verse. Um, so I really only aim to cover the title of the book, honestly. <laughs> um, in, in your copy of God's Word, there's a title at the top that says The Gospel According to Mark. That title was added when, when all the books were put together. The title that Mark gave the book is actually the first verse of the book. That's the title. And that verse, I want to put it on the screen, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'd like to do a little memory work with you, a little exercise. I want us to say it together. It's on the screen, right? You ready? Here we go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's do it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One more time. Close your eyes. You ready? Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Here we go. Ready? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Before we really dig into just this verse, let's dig into who wrote it. Who is our author? Who's the author of this book? Mark. Good. Okay. Specifically, what do we know about Mark? Honestly, not a whole, whole lot. So because there's not a whole lot, we're going to try to cover most of it this morning to find out who he is and kind of what what framework he's writing from. So Mark was not an apostle. As you read through the, the list of the first 12 men that Jesus chose, Mark's not among them. He's not a leading disciple. He's not even one of the deacons that were chosen early on in the book of Acts. The first mention of Mark comes in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, um, James has been beheaded. Herod has killed James and he's arrested Peter. And the church, the early church has gathered to pray. And they're in this this house praying for Peter. Peter is a leader in the church. James was the leader. He's, he's gone now. Peter is the leader and he's in prison. And so the church is praying. Oh God, please, please set him free, set him free. And the night before he's to be executed, an angel comes and miraculously the chains fall from his hand. The gate of the prison opens. Peter's set free. He walks out into the street. He's like, oh my gosh. The angel disappears and Peter goes, I know where they probably are. He runs to, the Bible says in Acts 12, 12, the house of Mary. Now, because there's like 27 Marys in the Bible, we're given a little bit of detail to help identify who Mary is. And you know how the, the scriptures, Luke identifies Mary? She's the mother of who? John Mark. This is the first time we're introduced to this man, Mark. He's a double name guy, John Mark. John Mark, we just know him as Mark when we read the gospel. But when you see John Mark, that's him. So in Acts 12, we see the introduction of John Mark. It's his first mention. And, and this mention is really just to identify his mother as the host of the church prayer meeting. So it's kind of an insignificant mention. The next time we see him is at the end of Acts 12. And we see that um, as they're getting ready to send out Paul and Barnabas, we find that John Mark is a companion to these missionaries as they're about to embark on their first missionary journey. He's a companion. We get into chapter 13. Look at verse five in Acts chapter 13. Let me flip over there. I'm just going to walk my way through the text in Acts 13, verse five. We see another mention of him when they arrived in Salamis. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues and the Jews. They had and they had John. That's John Mark to assist them. So he's not a he's not a preacher. He's an assistant to the preachers. He's a helper. 
assistant to missionaries. This first missionary journey turned out to be a doozy. <laughs> they end up going to, uh, to Cyprus. They run into a sorcerer there, some demon opposition. It's, it's kind of a radical first trek. And it turns out to be really difficult. When Paul and Barnabas head to the next place, they get on a boat to head to Perga. John Mark leaves. We find him again in Acts 13, 13. It says, now Paul and his companions, they set sail to Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And one little phrase Luke gives us, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. It seems insignificant until we read later in the chapter that when Paul and Barnabas in chapter 15, actually, when they uh, decide to embark on another missionary journey, they end up in a big fight. You guys remember the story? Paul and Barnabas are ready to get on the boat and, and, and head back out on their second trip. And Barnabas is like, let's bring, let's bring John Mark along. And Paul's like, no, we're not bringing the deserter with us. If you look in Acts 15, toward the end of the chapter in Acts 15, we find in verse 37, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. That's the Bible's way of saying they got in a fight. So that they separated from each other. This was such a serious fight that Paul was willing. He was like, look, if he's coming, you're not. This is how big a discussion, big an argument this was. Barnabas ended up taking Mark with him. And he sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul took Silas and he departed. And they went different ways. This is a big deal. Now, later on, Paul writing from prison, he writes a couple of letters from prison in Rome. And he mentions John Mark in a letter called Philemon in verse 24. And he refers to John Mark as a fellow worker who sends his greetings. A fellow worker. Now, this is an interesting phrase for somebody he had, he had just called a deserter. And what we need to know is that there's been a 10-year gap between Acts 15 and what we're reading here in Philemon uh, 24. 10 years until we see or hear from or hear about John Mark again. And then in Paul's last letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he mentions John Mark again. And it's kind of in a list of naming defectors. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And then he says, Get Mark. Bring him with you. And then look at this next phrase. For he is very useful to me for the ministry. That's interesting, isn't it? John Mark, who 10 years earlier, Paul was like, I don't even want him in my boat. I'm getting in the boat. If he's getting in, you guys are on your own. I don't want him. Well, at the end of Paul's life, he says he's useful to me for the ministry. Well, obviously, the 10 year gap of time has made a significant change in their relationship, right? The wounds of disappointment had healed so completely that trust and companionship was restored. John Mark, John Mark had failed Paul so massively he was willing to divide his team just to keep John Mark out of his boat, right? I want to ask you something before we move on. Have you ever been at odds with somebody like that? Whatever it takes, keep him away from me. I want you to know this. God can heal those hurts. He can restore broken relationships. He is more than able to heal what, what you've damaged or what someone else has damaged. Maybe it's not that someone has hurt you. Maybe you're the one who's done the damage. Maybe you are the failure like John Mark was. You know, he was the deserter. Maybe you are the failure. He's, well, here's some good news from the Gospel of Mark before we ever even get into it. Here it is. You ready? God 
uses failures. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who's the author of the second gospel of the New Testament? He's an epic failure. But God uses failures. That is really good news for me. (laughs) And for you. It is actually from your lowest moments that you have the loudest voice for his greatness. Don't miss the chance that a valley gives you to make much of the God of the mountain. So we see here that Mark was actually a close companion of Paul when they weren't enemies, they were frenemies. So this is awesome, right? Well, how would you like to have that on your resume? Um, friend of the Apostle Paul, right? That's pretty high on the list. But Mark actually has another companionship that might actually be more significant. How could it be? Well, during the 10 years that we lose sight of Mark, evidently he has connected with another key leader in the early church. Who might that be? I would think it would be the man from Acts 12 who took refuge in his mother's house. Peter. When we look to 1 Peter 5.13, we find the last mention of Mark. And Peter says about him, check it out. She, talking about the church, who is at Babylon, that's code word for Rome. The church at Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does who? Mark. And what's the tagline? My son. Well, now that's significant. That's the same way that Paul talks about Timothy, isn't it? My son in the faith. Paul writes about his, the one he's been mentoring, this young man that he's taken under his wings, that he's helped him to grow in the faith. He's nourished and nurtured his maturity. Paul says he's my son. And Peter here is making the same assertion about Mark, the deserter. Well, it's interesting is that Peter and Mark actually have a little bit in common, don't they? Peter, also a double name guy, right? Simon Peter. Two names. Also an epic failure. Remember what he told Jesus? I'll never. I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, the rooster won't even crow tomorrow before you deny me three times. An epic failure, right? But Jesus told Peter, when you've been restored, strengthen the brothers, right? So Jesus told Peter, what you're going to learn in the valley of deserting me is going to benefit you to disciple someone. And lo and behold, it would be John Mark. Mark had deserted Paul, but he was adopted in by Peter. And John Mark, actually, even though he's chosen by the Holy Spirit to write this gospel account, he's writing, historians tell us, the words of Peter. He's writing the story that Peter had recounted. He had traveled with Peter, apparently. He'd walked with Peter. He'd heard Peter preach. He'd listened to Peter's teachings. He'd been with Peter and he's writing and recounting the stories of Peter. All the historians starting in in the hundreds A.D. all the way through 300 A.D. They're all all of them recollecting that Mark writes the words of Peter. This is pretty phenomenal. What we learn and see here about Mark in particular is that he's chosen by the Holy Spirit to write this gospel, not because he was someone special, quite the opposite, actually. But because anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God has been brought in to telling the most special story ever told. That's me and you too. The beauty of Mark's gospel is that any failure can relate. And any failure finds hope in Christ. So this is where we begin. Now, now that we know who wrote it, let's look at what he says. Mark's opening words. Do you have them memorized? You ready to try again? Chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. And so let's look at them. I want to break it down into four little, four little moments. Here we go. The beginning. The beginning. What an epic way to open a book, right? There's a few other books of the Bible that have opened this way. How about Genesis? In the beginning, God created. How about John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is an epic way to begin. And Mark begins in like manner. He begins knowing that his message, what he has to say, is as world-shaping as the creation story and as the story that Jesus is the Word who created it all. He's saying, let me tell you about this Jesus. This is the beginning. And Mark, I think, is beginning here. Because he knows that this word made flesh created life and now has come to give eternal life. And so Mark starts with the beginning. He's saying Jesus changes everything. He's also connecting some dots for us. We know this story is not new. It's just a new chapter in a very old story. Jesus has come to undo the curse of Genesis 3. He's come to fulfill every promise, including Psalm chapter 2. He's come to make all things new, to redeem all those who are in bondage. Every hero of the old was a pointer to this one man. And so Mark says the beginning, and I think he's at the same time saying at last It's like all the buildup has come to this moment. At last, he's here. And this is the beginning of a new era. And then practically speaking, Mark has been on a 20-year journey since Christ was crucified and resurrected. So 20-plus years, he's been with Peter, and they've been telling this story. They've been seeing Things unfold. They've been seeing people's lives turned upside down. They've been seeing the kingdom be built in place after place after place. They preach this good news about Christ and people's lives are radically changed by Jesus. But here's what Mark has learned in 20 years of preaching the gospel. He says, this is only beginning. And look at us now, 2000 years later. Was he right? It's only the beginning. And so the the one thing we can take away from this expression is he also means it's to be continued, right? This good news, the proclamation of this life changing message is to be continued. So the beginning. Next emphasis is the gospel. Now, Mark has not grown tired of this main message, the gospel of Jesus. It's all about the gospel. I haven't gotten to go in a while, but I I used to love going into our local jail and hanging out with the inmates and just um, looking across a little steel table at a a handful of guys and who who their eyes have grown dark. They've been in there far too long. There's just no no life left in them. And look across this metal table at a handful of men and just tell them there's hope for you. There's hope for you. There's hope in Jesus. It's the good news of the gospel. There's nothing like seeing a man's eyes that are dark light up with the life of Christ. So the gospel means, anybody know what's it mean? Good news. Good news. Good news. Imagine having traveled with Paul and Peter, hearing and seeing this good news proclaimed and watching people's lives be radically turned upside down. So, of course, he titles the book, The Beginning of the Gospel. What else does he have to say that matters, right? This is the main message. He knows personally that that's where the power is. Mark was a failure. But Jesus, right? But Jesus. So it's good news. Here's the good news. We're all failures. You agree? We're all failures. Every one of us have disappointed someone, betrayed someone, rebelled against someone. Every one of us. But we've not only wronged each other. Even worse, our sins are against holy God. 
as a sinner, not just a failure, but as a sinner, we are condemned to die. Just like Adam and Eve were, and not just a physical death, but a spiritual separation. Sin damns people eternally to be separated from God forever. Do you believe that? Come on, church, do you believe that? You say, well, I know I've sinned, but I don't think it's that bad. Well, that depends. It depends on who you're comparing yourself with. And it depends on who you've sinned against. If you're comparing yourself to another sinner, well, take your pick. None is righteous. No, not one. You might be better or worse. Just depends on who you're picking, right? Might not be too bad compared to me (laughs) or someone else. But try comparing yourself to Jesus. And it's here we learn that he is the standard. You know, it also depends on who you've sinned against. If you've sinned against me, well, okay, that's not good. If you've sinned against the mayor, well, that's even worse. If you've sinned against the governor, now it's getting serious, right? If you've sinned against, I don't know, Vladimir Putin, trouble. You got some trouble. Bald dude is an angry guy. (laughs) But if you've sinned against holy God almighty, well, now it's eternally serious, isn't it? It's infinitely terrible. And you and I, we are desperately in need of saving. And somebody right now is thinking, I thought you said the gospel was good news. It is good news. It's the best news. You see, you you won't care very much that there's been a cure for a cure found for Alzheimer's unless you have it. You won't care very much if there's a cure been found for brain cancer unless you're dying with brain cancer. You won't care very much if there's been a cure for ALS unless your body is deteriorating day by day. But when you hear that the eternally damning disease of sin that you have has been wiped out by the righteous blood of Jesus, well, this is good news. It's the best news ever that the son of God, the righteous one has come to rescue sinners, epic failures. Now you can leap for joy because this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because you are and I, we are sinners who need salvation. So Mark is writing to give hope to the hopeless. And he's writing about a hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. So let's spend some time here. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The name Jesus. Matthew chapter one, verse 21. We're given the story of how the angel told Mary how to name her son. The angel spoke to the Virgin Mary. She said, you'll name your son Jesus And then there's this explanation for he will save his people from their sins. We find out the name Jesus actually means savior. It's from the Hebrew name Joshua, which is why actually he's more accurately called Yeshua. If you've ever heard the name Yeshua, this is why he's called Yeshua. It's a reference back to the Hebrew name Joshua, which actually means Yahweh saves or God is salvation. Jesus was his given name. Mary and Joseph gave him the name Jesus, but it's the name he was called by everyone. So think about that for a minute. Just calling his name is saying, Savior, Savior, come over here. You know, like in the Red Rover game, that would be funny, wouldn't it? Red Rover, Red Rover, call Savior right over. That's the way they called his name. It's who his name is, Jesus. It means Savior. Well, Christ is not his last name, surprisingly. It's not like John Smith, Jesus Christ. It's actually a title. It's his office, Christ 
When you read or say Jesus Christ, you should think it this way. Jesus, the Christ. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. So you're saying Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. The idea here is that Jesus is the anointed one, meaning he is the one to be king. It's always a reference to his kingship. Anointing was the way a person was set aside to be on the throne. Do you remember the story of Samuel anointing David? Um, Samuel came to the sons of Jesse and they brought all the boys out and he's looking at all of them. They all look like big, strapping, handsome young men. But he's like, nope, 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 nope. And he's like, do you got any more kids? He's like, yeah, we got one more boy. He's a little scrappy thing out watching the sheep. Bring him here. Right. And in comes David. He's like, ah. Let's anoint this one. He is God's anointed king. That's the idea of anointing to be king. The Messiah, the anointed one, is the long-awaited king of promise. The king that would sit on the throne of David forever. Look with me, if you will, at Luke chapter 1. We we talked about Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, but I want you to listen to the way Luke recounts Jesus' birth and naming. In Luke 1, verse 31, the angel speaking to Mary in verse 30 says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The promise about Jesus was not just that he was coming to save people, to die for people, but that he would be resurrected and seated on the throne of eternity as the king. So when Mark opens this gospel and he says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, he's saying two things about him. He's saying he's savior and he's king. He's the Savior King. So here's where I want to be clear again. You can only receive Jesus as Savior if you submit to Christ as King. It's a two for one deal. You do not get the perks of salvation without complete surrender of your life to his lordship. Now, I'm not saying you have to be sinless. Only he is sinless. But I am saying you have to sin less. Repentance is the posture of a person who submitted to Jesus as king. Repentance becomes your way of life. It means as sin surfaces in you, as you discover, oh man, this is not good about me. As those things come to light, your default as a person who's been saved by Jesus and surrendered to Christ as king, your default is to repent and not reject him. Listen, if you refuse to repent of your sin, even when you're confronted and called to repent by loving brothers and sisters, In that, you prove that Jesus is not your king. And thus, he is not your savior. This is a sobering reality, but it's the reason why Jesus gives to the church a process for church discipline. It's a process by which we call each other to repent of sin. Hey, shocker, I'm a sinner. Are you? And we need each other. Occasionally, we need each other to step into each other's lives and say, hey, stop it. 
If Jesus is your king, you don't get to live like that. That person, if Jesus is their king, will say, ah, you're right. And, and eventually they hopefully will say, thank you. Right? Sometimes that's not the initial response. But, initial, but eventually, hopefully, a believer would say, you know what, thank you for calling me out. I really, I really don't want to be like that. I need to repent of this sin. And so would you, would you help me? Yes, I'll help you. This is the church. This is how we do life together. It's a, it's a give and take of loving rebuke and repentance. This is the way we live with Christ as king. But Jesus outlines for us a process in Matthew 18 that's incredibly painful But in the event that someone refuses to repent repeatedly, Matthew 18 actually says you put them out as an unbeliever. Well, that's awful, right? Except Jesus says that they may be saved. This is wild stuff. But what Mark is teaching right here is that you only get Christ, you only get Jesus as Savior if you take him as your king. Again, it doesn't mean you live perfect. It just means you live submitted to him. You know, Jesus actually came to save you from your sin, not save you so you can sin. There is a big difference. In fact, an eternal difference. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we come to the last bit here. Number four, the son of God. Mark finishes this opening sentence with the very claim that drove the nails in Jesus's hands. You know, it wasn't his miracles or even his radical teachings that got him killed. It was Jesus's claim to be the son of God. This is how the book opens. Mark brings the book at an open with this claim about Jesus Christ. He's the son of God, the very thing that got Jesus killed. It's also how he closes the book in Mark 15. There's this um, centurion at the foot of the cross and he's just finished killing Jesus. And he says, surely this man was the son of God. Book ends. Mark starts and ends his book with this emphasis on Jesus being the son of God. So significant a realization that in Acts chapter 9, you know, Saul, when Saul um, was persecuting the church, he had just martyred Stephen. And then he's on his way to Damascus. He gets, in, gets on the road to Damascus. And, and who encounters him on the road? That's it. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shining bright light, knocks him off his horse. He's blinded. He's like, who are you, Lord? Acts 9, 5. That's what he says. Who are you, Lord? After the end of a conversation, Paul ends up in Damascus and by Acts 9.20, he's standing to preach. Now they've welcomed him there. They've invited him to come and they're ready to hear this persecutor give a message of, of rage against the church. How shocked do you think they are when Paul stands up in Acts chapter 9 verse 20 and he says, this Jesus. In verse 20, he says, he is the son of God. It's a bold, huge claim. It's the very first way he opens his sermon. Well, I want to ask you, did Jesus make this claim? Did he claim to be the son of God? Did he? Yes, he did. Do you remember um, Matthew 16 and in Mark 8? Jesus was talking to his disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're the prophet. And then Peter steps up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right now, did Jesus at that point say, whoa, whoa, Pete, hey, Pete, Pete, you can't say that, man, that's blasphemy. You can't say that. Don't I don't ever want to hear those words come out of your mouth. Did Jesus say that? What did he say? Blessed are you, Peter. For flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father, the son of God, right? My father in heaven has revealed this to you. This is a wild claim. Jesus is saying, yes, ding, ding, ding. You got it. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. He was asked that question again later, the Sanhedrin, when they have him on trial, they're saying, are you the Christ, the son of God? And Jesus says, I am. 
And there's coming a day you'll see me riding on the clouds. (laughs) He's bold, man. He's bold. He's brash. He knew. My answer to this question is either going to get me off the hook or it's going to put me on the cross. And he was like, cross it is. And in John 19, verse 7, we actually find why the Jewish leaders killed him. They're very specific. Pilate wanted to set him free. Pilate was like, hey, there's, he's innocent. I find no fault in this man. John 19, verse 7, it says, he ought to die because this man has made himself to be the son of God. Pretty wild, right? This is the claim that got Jesus killed. So here's two questions for us. What does this title mean and why does it matter? Here's what it means. It means more than this, but essentially this is most important. It means this. Jesus is God. He is God. He is not just a man. Jesus was not the son of the carpenter named Joseph. When you read through some of the genealogies in the New Testament, it says he was the son of Joseph and Joseph. And then there's a parenthesis that says, as they all presumed. (laughs) The point of that phrase is he wasn't really the son of Joseph. Joseph had graciously taken him in as his own. But, you know, even when Jesus was a kid at age 12, he, he sort of disappeared, went off into the temple. And they were like, where have you been, son? And he was like, don't you know, I must be about my father's business. I got to be in my father's house. He knew who his real dad was. Jesus came as a baby, but he didn't begin there. This is what we call the incarnation. His birth wasn't his beginning. Jesus is God, the son, the second person of the Trinity. He eternally existed with God, the father from the beginning. John chapter one makes it super clear, says that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Everything that was made was made by him and through him and for him. Right. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the son of God, Jesus Christ. At Mark one, verse 11, at his baptism, a voice thunders from heaven saying, this is my beloved. What? Son in whom I'm well pleased. God himself from heaven makes this claim. So many scriptures. I'll just read a few quickly. Colossians 2, 9 says, In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2, 6 says, Though being in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Do you remember Jesus told Philip and the other disciples, If you've seen Me, you've seen who? The Father. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He and I, we're the same. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except through me. He's the Son through whom we go. So here's why it matters. That's what it means. Here's why it matters. No ordinary man could save us from our sins. Only God can forgive sins. Do you remember when Jesus healed the paralytic? They lowered him through the roof and... And uh, everybody was expecting, oh, gosh, watch. He's fixing to raise this man up to walk. Oh, this is going to be incredible. And what did Jesus start with? He said, your sins are forgiven. He looked over. The Pharisees were shocked. And he was like, oh, did that upset you guys? You upset? You bothered by that? Is that because only God forgives sin? Well, to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sin, watch this. Get up and walk. What was the point Jesus is making there? I am God. And because I'm God, I can forgive your sin. God himself clothed himself in flesh and came as the son of God, son of man. And he came to save sinners. So I love the way Galatians 4 frames this up before us. This matters because through the son, through God's only begotten son, We can be adopted as sons. 
Listen to what Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says. This is the great foundation of our hope. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. The Bible says to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see the connection? God sent his son so that he might adopt many sons. Don't be offended, ladies. Sons is just to say you get the inheritance. So to be super clear, and here's where I want to extend an invitation to you today. In 1 John 5, verse 12, how important is this issue? Mark opens with this in verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How important is it that you understand Jesus is the Son of God? Listen. First John 5, 12 says, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's a life and death claim. It's life and death. It's of first importance to have life. You must have you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. To have eternal life. Now, anybody can repeat those words, right? Anybody can say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Anybody can say words. But you must be like Peter was. You must be blessed of God to have received that truth from him. Blessed are you, Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What is what is? Jesus mean by that? It's not by your smart thinking or anyone else's persuasive words. Instead, God himself has revealed this to you. He's opened your blind eyes to see who Jesus really is. Has that happened to you? Has God opened your blind eyes to see that he is Jesus, Savior? He's Christ, King. He's the Son of God who came to rescue sinners like you and me. Has God opened your eyes to see that? God opens our hearts to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So as we journey through the gospel of Mark, may the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shine in our hearts as we gaze into the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.